In 2010, British scientists plunged a remotely operated vehicle into the freezing Southern Ocean. Her name was Isis, and her goal was to go where no scientist could go themselves, to explore heated water vents along the ocean floor. Nearly two miles below the surface, all was eerily calm, until they spotted a strange creature something they'd never seen before. It had a sickly pale coloring, strange appendages, and a hairy chest. One researcher remarked that it looked like David Hasselhoff. Excited and a little unnerved, the scientists snapped photos and collected samples of the bizarre creature. Then they raced them to the surface. Turns out they had found an undiscovered species. Of crab. Just four years later, biologists struck scientific gold. Again, this time in the Mariana Trench, an ocean floor canyon even more mysterious than the Southern Ocean vents. There, they found the deepest fish ever recorded. A snailfish. In 2020, it happened again. In an uncharted part of the ocean, scientists found another new species. This one, a shrimp-like crustacean. All these discoveries supported an alarming conclusion that roughly 80% of our oceans remain unexplored. At this point, we know more about the surface of Mars than the ocean floor. With so much left to be discovered, one has to wonder what else is hiding in the depths. Maybe not a crustacean, but a legendary sea creature one recounted in hundreds of legends and real-life reports from centuries ago all the way to the present day. We're talking, of course, about mermaids. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on mermaids. Stories of these half-fish, half-human creatures come from all across the globe and date back to the earliest civilizations. Today, we'll explore mermaid tales and alleged sightings from the Roman Empire to the modern day. And we'll investigate the plausibility of these creatures hiding in the ocean's vast unknown. Next week, we'll look at royal dynasties who insisted they were descended from a real mermaid and examine what it is about these enchanting creatures that has enthralled us for centuries. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most. 
at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The most famous mermaid story is Disney's The Little Mermaid, followed closely by its inspiration, Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. But to really understand mermaid lore, we need to go back to Andersen's own inspiration. A tale called Undine. The story has roots in ancient mythology, but the most famous version was written by Baron Fouquet in his 1811 novella, Undine. It contains all the elements of traditional mermaid stories, so we're going to briefly retell it as a point of reference with a few tweaks of our own. Like many fairy tales, it starts with a handsome prince lost in a forest. The rain came out of nowhere, but as Prince Hugo wrung out his hat for the third time, he wished desperately that he had taken a carriage, or at least a horse. The prince scrambled for shelter. After walking what felt like miles, he finally found some, in the form of a funny house. It was perched on stilts and nestled among the trees. Hugo ducked underneath. He barely had time to wring out his hat again when the floorboards above him creaked. Hugo yelped and braced for the impact. Instead, he heard a voice like raindrops. Would you like to come up? He opened his eyes to see a ladder leading up to a trap door. Peering from inside was a beautiful woman. She had long, wavy hair and glassy blue eyes. The woman lowered her hand to help him, though her skeletal arm looked like it might break if he grabbed it. Hugo simply climbed the ladder, nodding in shock. The unmistakable scent of fish blood assaulted Hugo's nostrils as he climbed. The woman saw his face and apologized. 
Her father was a fisherman and often brought his work home. She didn't mind, though, since he'd brought her home some years ago. He found her as a baby, abandoned on the beach, and he and his wife raised her as their own. At the moment, they were both away, fishing. Hugo noticed the woman was also soaking wet. He asked her if she'd been caught in the rain, too. No, I was in the bath, she answered, gesturing to her silk robe. She told him her name was Undine and invited him to stay until the storm stopped. Hugo eagerly agreed. But the rain didn't stop. Floodwaters rose all the way up to the little house's stilts. But somehow the interior of the home stayed remarkably dry. Except for Undine. She was frequently in the bath. The prince found it charming. His betrothed, Sophia, barely bathed once a month. When he mentioned this to Undine, she bristled. Why would you want to marry a woman like that? The longer he spent with Undine, the more Hugo agreed. Sophia was an ordinary woman, but Undine was like no one he'd ever met. Enchanting, intoxicating, he even got used to the fish smell. Before long, his desire for Undine consumed him. He begged for a single chaste kiss, but each time she refused, she would only kiss her husband. Finally, Hugo conceded, I will be your husband. At that moment, the rain stopped. Undine suggested they sail the floodwaters to the nearby chapel where they could make their union official. Hugo agreed. By sunset, they were back inside the house, Hugo relentlessly kissing Undine until she stopped him. She had a confession. She wasn't born a mortal woman. She was a soulless water spirit, a mermaid. She'd always hoped to marry a human man, as it was the only way for mermaids to gain their soul and get into heaven. And now, thanks to Hugo, she had. The prince was more concerned with Undine's body than her soul. She'd keep her legs, right? No fishtail? Undine assured Hugo she'd keep a woman's form as long as he never betrayed or abandoned her. Hugo swore his loyalty. Then Undine added one more detail. Her uncle, the king of the Mer people, was out for her blood. He'd hunted her as long as she could remember, hoping to drag her back to the depths of the sea. Now that she had a soul, he'd want her even more. Hugo promised he'd protect Undine from her uncle and any monster that tried to separate them. He leaned in for another kiss. But that very moment, the floodwaters receded in a tremendous wave. Undine was thrilled, Now she could go meet her new husband's family, the king and queen. Hugo agreed, though he suspected the rain and the floods hadn't stopped on their own. If he'd truly married a mermaid, she might have power over the weather. And perhaps none of this had been a coincidence. Still, he loved Undine. So off they went to Hugo's father's castle, where they were greeted by Hugo's betrothed, Sophia or formally betrothed, as Undine callously informed her. Hugo was torn. Sophia wasn't as crass as he remembered. And at the very least, 
He didn't want Undine to hurt her feelings. But within days, his new wife was making plans to seal up Sophia's favorite fountain. Sophia protested. There was nothing wrong with the fountain. And Hugo agreed. Hearing this, Undine's eyes burned icy blue. How dare he go against his wife's wishes? Had he not listened? The king of the water spirits was hunting her, and this fountain connected to an aquifer, which led to a river which flowed to the ocean. Her uncle could swim up it and steal her from Hugo forever. Hugo's chest tightened at the thought, so he gave the command, sealed the fountain. The servants followed his orders as Undine covered her prince with kisses. Still, Hugo felt guilty. He allowed Sophia to live at the castle until she found a new nobleman to marry, and he personally escorted her to meet new suitors. On these trips, he found himself singing Sophia's praises to men across the kingdom, and he remembered why he'd fallen in love with her in the first place. But every time, he shook it off. Undine was his true love. Undine must have sensed his wandering eye. She asked to join the next trip. Hugo explained the journey would be by riverboat. Wouldn't it be dangerous for her? It only made Undine want to go more. The trio sailed down the river on a run of perfect sunny days. Until one afternoon, the sky went dark. Hugo asked Undine if everything was all right. She answered, My uncle, I fear he's found us. Suddenly, a wave slammed the boat. Another crashed against them from the opposite side. Water rushed up Hugo's nose as he slid off the deck and into the river. Hugo forced his eyes open, but all he could see was the murky river. Bony fingers grabbed his neck. He screamed as the water rushed into his throat, choking him. Something bit his lower lip. Then the water receded from his lungs like a low tide. Hugo could breathe underwater. Regaining his strength, he realized the hands on his neck belonged to Undine, but she didn't look like herself. Her bones were visible beneath her skin. Her face looked like a skull in the water, and her long, beautiful legs were replaced with a scaly silver fishtail. Hugo wrenched himself away from the monster and swam to the surface. He scrambled onto the boat, where Sophia clung to the mast, shivering. Hugo screamed orders to the remaining crew, sailed to shore. But the boat held steady. Hugo saw Undine clinging to the side with her bony arms and long fishtail. She cried out, Hugo, help me. My uncle has a hold on me. But Hugo would do no such thing. This was not his wife. This was an evil creature, colluding with water spirits to drown him. He screamed, Away, monster! Undine's hopeful face turned dark. Slowly, she released her hold on the boat, her fishtail splashing into the water. She yelled, I'll leave you, but be warned, Prince Hugo. If you break your marriage vows to a mermaid, you will face death. Hugo sailed to shore without another word. He led his men and Sophia back to his castle, where he mourned for 60 days. 
At the end of this period, Sophia asked if they might find her another suitor. Hugo took her hand. His dalliance with Undine had been a mistake. But if Sophia would forgive him, he'd honor his past commitment and take her as his bride. Sophia did forgive him. The pair married and lived happily in their landlocked castle. Soon, they had a little boy, and Hugo felt a joy he'd never experienced before. He'd do anything for his son. When the child got older, he asked Hugo if he could have a fountain, specifically the one sealed up in the middle of the courtyard. Hugo agreed. They'd unseal it together. The pair cracked through the brick and mortar. As the water trickled forth, the boy smiled in delight. Hugo continued removing bricks, basking in his son's laughter. Until a cold, skeletal hand grabbed his. Undine's tail lashed out of the fountain and snared Hugo's body. She pulled him against her, saying, Remember when you desired to kiss me? Before Hugo could answer, Undine's mouth was on his. He realized she was crying. Her tears spilled over his face and body, soaking Hugo, flooding the courtyard and flowing over his head. Hugo kissed Undine back. It was all he could do as he drowned in her tears. There you have it, a traditional mermaid tale, a tragedy resulting in the death of the male hero at the hands of a mermaid. That narrative tradition might be why Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid grew so popular. It also ended sadly, but the prince wasn't killed by his mermaid lover. It subverted an age-old legend. Traditional mermaids are much like Undine, bad omens said to control the weather, ruin lives, and kill human men. And they aren't just in fairy tales. Coming up, historic sightings of killer mermaids. Hi, it's Sarah Turney from the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. In honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, we've been showcasing a series of impactful stories we think you should hear. This week, I'm teaming up with the Cold Cases podcast to examine one of the most high-profile cases in U.S. history, The Boy in the Box. For nearly 70 years, people all over the country wondered, who is America's unknown child? How did he die? And where is his family? A forensic breakthrough would ultimately tell us his name, Joseph Augustus Sorelli. But as you'll come to find out, that was just one piece of the mystery. Catch this incredible episode this Thursday on Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Mermaid legends date back to the cradle of human civilization. But in each story, there's something to be feared. The earliest people were the northern Syrian goddess Atargetus and the Mesopotamian god Ea. Both were half-fish, half-human, and held great power over their followers. Later, people weren't always worshipped as gods, but they were still figures to be respected. 
and sometimes feared. Scottish folklore tells of the Blue Men of the Minch. The Minch is a dangerous channel of water between northern Scotland and its western islands. The Blue Men who resided there were said to be fallen angels forbidden from entering heaven. They were also known for luring sailors into rhyming contests. If a sailor accepted the challenge and lost, the Blue Men killed him. Similarly, the Japanese Kappa challenged sailors to a wrestling match where the loser was usually killed. Even worse, the Kappa allegedly kidnapped young children and ate human flesh. In Africa and the Caribbean, the Mami Wata drowns children too, but only disobedient ones. All of these creatures, no matter where they're from, tend to have similar victims. As with the story of Undine, they prey on those guilty of pride, humans who think they can best the powers of the ocean. But unlike other ancient myths, mermaids don't just appear in folklore. They're also mentioned in historical records. In ancient Rome, Pliny the Elder wrote one of the world's first encyclopedias. Under the Natural History of Fishes, he included orcas, manatees, and nereids, the Greek version of mermaids. Pliny wrote that the Roman emperor Tiberius received written reports of a merman seen around a coastal cave. The report was taken as truth. Then Pliny cited another letter, this one addressed to Emperor Augustus, who reigned before Tiberius. It was a report from an army general in Gaul, and it sounded like a formal complaint. The general informed the emperor that the coastline was covered in corpses. Mermaid corpses. The exact text isn't preserved, but the implication is that dealing with dead mermaids was just one of many bureaucratic worries. In the 12th and 13th centuries, mentions of mermaids also appeared in bestiaries, scholarly texts that described all the world's creatures. Like Pliny's Encyclopedia, the authors casually presented mermaids among other aquatic creatures we know today. We could chalk this up to superstition, but as more humans embarked on long sea voyages, mermaid sightings only grew. Explorers Christopher Columbus, John Smith, and Henry Hudson all sent their respective leaders news of mermaids around North America. These came alongside reports of very real geography and people they encountered. When cartographers drew maps of North America, they included mermaids. And at least one sailor reportedly took these maps seriously, Blackbeard. In the early 1700s, the notorious pirate actually planned his sailing routes to avoid mermaid-infested waters. And then there are dozens upon dozens of other accounts by non-famous sailors. Most of them go something like this. The men had been at sea for months. They worked day after day and weathered endless storms. But out there, surrounded by open ocean, things were getting grim. Some considered jumping overboard. Others fantasized about mutiny. But mostly, they picked useless fights. Until someone whispered, do you see that? Men gathered at the stern, squinting toward the horizon. 
At first, there was nothing out there, just water. Then the sailor pointed. There on the distant rocks was a beautiful woman. She combed her long hair, singing in a foreign language. The sailor's hungry eyes traced her body down, down, down to scales, then a broad flopping fin. Inhuman and yet bewitching, certainly not one of God's creatures. Maybe they should shoot her or catch her with a net. Before they could decide, the mermaids spotted the ship and dove underwater. Too many of these accounts exist for them to be fully fabricated. But if the seafarers weren't seeing mermaids, they had to be seeing something. The most obvious and cynical explanation? Seals and manatees. Sailors were often exhausted or drunk, and few wore glasses. This may have contributed to them mistaking the mammals as something humanoid, especially when sailors didn't know what manatees were. The brain is hardwired to make this error. It's a scientific phenomenon called pareidolia. We look at random images and very often see faces or bodies where there isn't one. Think of cloud watching or all those people who've claimed to see Jesus on a piece of toast. Adding to impaired vision and pareidolia, most sailors were lonely. With no women in sight, that mysterious creature moving in the water could be scary or your next girlfriend. There's an internet joke called Rule 34, which suggests lonely people will sexualize anything if they get desperate enough. Anything includes sea creatures. But sailors weren't the only ones who saw mermaids as sexual beings. There's the story of Undine, of course. Then there's a Salish tale from the Pacific Northwest, telling of a woman who was unlucky in love until a fish man began visiting her at night. This trend even goes back to ancient Syria, where devotees of the mermaid-like goddess Atargatas castrated themselves, as if to symbolize that she was their only sexual relationship. But there's an obvious and cynical explanation here, too. Perhaps those sailors didn't see anything at all. Maybe mermaid stories were just an excuse to draw and share pictures of undressed women. It wasn't obscene art. It was scientific documentation. How could there be anything lewd in a warning of danger? At least, that's what any sailor would tell you. But lusty sailors and blurry manatees can't explain every alleged mermaid encounter. Take, for instance, the explorer Henry Hudson. His crew knew what seals and manatees were. They'd identified them before. But in June 1608, somewhere in the Arctic Ocean, Hudson and his men explicitly reported sightings of mermaids. Maybe they did see a mermaid. Or maybe they saw something else. Mermaid sightings come up so frequently in sailors' accounts, they almost seem like a code. Think about it. Sailors speak in their own language, nautical terms like port and starboard and fathoms. Mermaids could have been a term for anything they wanted to keep secret from prying eyes, like smuggled drugs or stolen gold. It would also explain why mermaids were featured on maps. 
And perhaps that's why mermaid sightings only grew more common over time. More seafaring activity meant more seafaring secrets. But there's a catch. Because in the 19th century, it wasn't just sailors seeing mermaids. Anyone could, for the right price. Coming up, mermaids in the modern era. Now, back to the story. In 1842, New Yorkers opened up their newspapers to an enticing advertisement. There was a new museum opening up, the American Museum. It promised an escape from the doldrums of life. Those who entered would see the wonders of natural history on display. Children brought the ad to their parents, begging to go see the mummies, the platypuses, and a real mermaid. Whole families put on their Sunday best to see the beautiful aquatic creature. They paid their quarters and looked among the curiosities for the fish tank. But there was no tank, because the mermaid on display was dead. She was smaller than the children, hairless, with spiky fins and skeletal hands. There was no sense of magic, no allure. This mermaid looked nothing like the ads, which showed three beautiful mermaids, wild in the ocean, alive. It wasn't just a case of false advertising. On further examination, the whole thing was proven to be a fake. The so-called Fiji mermaid was nothing but a dead monkey sewn onto a dead fish. And the man behind it all? P.T. Barnum, the famous sideshow hoaxer. To cap it all off, Barnum wasn't even original. From the looks of it, he stole the idea from Japan, where it was possible to see mummified ningyo, creatures supposedly made from the head of a monkey and the tail of a fish. At least three centuries before Barnum premiered his attraction, tourists in Europe could buy similar souvenirs. Called Jenny Hanovers, these were manta ray skeletons passed off as mermaids. All these hoaxes had one thing going for them. Compared to prior mermaid sightings, they were much more believable. Scientifically, that is. Because if mermaids are real, they're probably unattractive. They'd have to be if they're hiding in the deep sea. The deeper into the ocean you go, the colder and darker it gets. To survive, deep-sea mermaids would need transparent skin with visible bones, kind of like the story of Undine when she takes her true form. They might also be eyeless or blind, with sharp fangs. Instead of long, flowing hair, imagine a glowing antenna, like an anglerfish. And if they're adapted to thousands of pounds of water pressure, any mermaid brought to the surface might lose her shape, like the famous blobfish. Forget the image of a beautiful mermaid. She'd look more like a bag of slime. The point is, a mermaid washed ashore probably won't look like Ariel. So, sexy mermaids? Likely not possible. But humanoid creatures from the deep sea? Well... The reports are still coming in. 
Around 2009, the coastal suburb of Kiryat Yam in Israel's Haifa district built a new pier. The long walkway jutted straight out over the Mediterranean Sea. Locals flooded in to fish, swim, and stare at the beautiful seascape. It was a million-dollar view. The sun set over the water each evening, spraying pinks and oranges over the bright blue waves. One Israeli woman watched the sun dip lower, relaxation washing over her. But she wasn't the only one taking in the sunset. Terrified, the woman murmured, God help Kiryat Yam. Among the white and orange foam, she'd spotted what she said looked like a big fish, but with a human face and hair. The woman fled the pier. She might have written it off as a hallucination, until she learned she wasn't the only one who'd experienced something odd along that coast. There was another account by an older man. He was swimming in the current, getting his exercise, when two hands pushed his legs apart. Then, something swam between them. But unlike the woman, he wasn't scared. He said the touch felt euphoric, and in retrospect was certain that one, this was a mermaid, and two, she was flirting with him. Throughout the summer of 2009, different locals reported a mermaid surfacing near the pier around sunset, splashing around, then diving back into the sea. Sometimes she smiled at them. There were so many sightings, the local government got involved. The mayor of Kiryat Yam offered a million-dollar reward to anyone who could provide actual evidence of a mermaid off their coast. He even hung an oversized check in his office to show he was serious. The massive prize drew international attention. CNN sent reporters, as did Sci-Fi TV's investigative show, Destination Truth. Though CNN only found locals who believed in the mermaid, Destination Truth got video. Their thermal footage showed something warm enough to be alive, roughly the shape of a human head and shoulders, bobbing around the surface of the Mediterranean Sea. But they couldn't confirm anything beyond that. For the mayor of Kiryat Yam, that didn't suffice. For months, he kept the giant check in his office, ready for whoever caught the mermaid. But nobody came forward with undeniable proof. And no one figured out what all these people saw in the Mediterranean Sea. Hundreds of sightings and no answer. Just a few years later, in 2012, work on a new dam near Gokwe, Zimbabwe, hit a snag. Workers were hired to dive into the water and install pumps. Nothing unusual there. What was strange was what happened at the bottom of the reservoir. After the men installed the pumps, the machines mysteriously broke down. When other divers were sent in to investigate, they were allegedly chased back to land, and they vowed never to return. According to local legends, people have even gone missing beneath the water's surface. There are conflicting reports of what exactly happened in the water. The dam itself was part of a multi-million dollar government project, meaning there may have been an incentive to cover up any deaths or disappearances on the worksite. 
Whatever happened, it's undisputed that many of the workers quit, blaming mermaids. Now, mermaids have a long history in native Zimbabwean culture, so it's not uncommon for sightings to be reported there. The officials in charge chalked it up to local superstition and decided to hire white men to finish the job. People who didn't believe in mermaids shouldn't have any trouble. The white divers jumped in, descended to the bottom to look at the pumps, and very quickly came back up. We don't know what they saw, but they quit too. The situation was a disaster. The government of Zimbabwe had no one to finish building the dam. If they didn't get rid of the alleged mermaids, the surrounding area would run out of water. So they embraced folklore. Traditional religious leaders were invited to the dam. They performed ancient rituals, including brewing beer as an offering to the mermaids. With the ceremony complete, Zimbabweans were willing to dive underwater again. And this time, they safely completed the job. To this day, it's unknown exactly what the divers saw, but no one wants to explore the dam to find out. Some people would just rather not know. Like in the case of one Japanese mermaid. Centuries ago, in the spring of 1222, a fisherman near Japan's Hakata Bay found a body on the beach. A shaman came to examine it. The body was unmistakably a dead ningyo, a mermaid. The people of Hakata Bay buried the mermaid's body in their temple. And for 500 years, it remained there, considered a blessing. In the late 1700s, the people exhumed the mermaid's remains. They soaked her bones in water and used it as a cure for illness. This went on for years. The mermaid is still in the temple to this day. Though the water is no longer distributed, visitors are permitted to see the creature's six remaining bones. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, there's no interest in finding out what they may or may not be. The people of Hakata Bay prefer the legend. That's the crux of mermaid stories. They're scary and dangerous, but in many ways beloved. A human obsession. So maybe the real mystery is, if they aren't real creatures, why can't we stop talking about them? Next week, we'll explore some answers to that question, and we may just find that they're not just the stuff of folklore and fairy tales. There could be a little bit of mermaid in all of us. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next Tuesday with part two of Mermaids. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wickers, our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. 
This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Maggie Admire, edited by Wendelin Sobroso and Alex Garland, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. 